Uh, welcome everyone. Uh, so this, here's the afternoon. Um, in Israel, it's the evening. Uh, so we're very pleased to have Rabbi Fisher uh, lead a session about the Khatam uh, Sofer. And I'm sure he'll tell us a lot about his place in history and his, uh, his work. Rabbi Fisher is an independent writer, a translator, Rabbi. He uh, holds degrees from Yeshiva University and he's working towards a doctorate at uh, Tel Aviv University. He has a smicha from the, from the chief rabbinate in Israel. Uh, he's worked as a, uh, as a writer. He's involved with Rabbi Eliezer Mulamath's Pinine Halacha. He's a co-founder of MAPA. That's a project that applies analysis, quantitative analysis to rabbinic literature. He's a founding editor of the, of the Warehouse, a web magazine of contemporary Jewish thought. And he's written uh, many articles in, in various uh, places, various sites. He has a particular interest in religion and politics in Israel, interplay between legal and non-legal elements of the Talmud and uh, Central European Jewish history. And we look forward now to Rabbi Fisher's uh, teaching about the Khatam Sofer and his hit and his work. Thank you, Rabbi Fisher, and welcome. Thank you. So did you hear this one? How many Orthodox Jews does it take to change a light bulb? Change? <laughs> we don't change. <laughs> so that idea that mythos of that's what it means to be orthodox. It means rigidly unchanging. That's an idea that is ascribed to the Chassam Sofer, or it's associated with the Chatam Sofer more than with any other figure in modern Jewish history. Um, and for, for starters, I'd like to take a look at how Chatam Sofer is described in a few recent and very very good works of um, contemporary scholarship, contemporary uh, Jewish scholarship. And these are these are examples. This is not this is not an exhaustive list. This is how Khatam Sofer is described. So this first one is from a book that came out a couple of years ago called Jewish Legal Writings, edited by Leora Batnitsky and Yonatan Brafman, another Dallas name for those who have been listening. Um, and uh, I actually helped them work on, I, I, I worked on this book with them. I translated a number of the sources that they used, including some of the responsa from Khatam Sofer. So they have an introductory paragraph on Khatam Sofer, and this is how they describe him. So the biographical details, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more in a little while. But if you see how he's described, his approach to Jewish law, we're in the sixth line or so, his approach to Jewish law is characterized by strict conservatism, expressed in a statement that would become the motto of his followers. The new is forbidden by the Torah. Chadash asur min ha-Torah. Sofer asserts what he claims is the authority of an unchanged tradition which he simultaneously constructs, meaning obviously the tradition wasn't unchanged or it was, it was constantly changing, but he um, asserted that it's unchanging. Indeed, Sofer's motto itself is based on an innovative reinterpretation of a classical rabbinic 
dictum, right? Chadash Asur Min Torah shows up in the Gemara meaning something else. It's talking about Chadash as in new grain, grain that was from the contempt from the from the new crop that couldn't be eaten eaten until uh, after uh, until after um, Pesach. So Sofer's innovative conservatism is evident in his leveling of previously acknowledged legal distinctions, meaning he blurs the distinctions between black letter law and custom and between rabbinic law and biblical law. Why? To solidify Jewish law as a monolithic structure that must be accepted in its entirety. He argues that rabbinically instituted laws possess biblical authority and contemporary rabbinic courts cannot modify them. Another example, this is from, I think the second printing of the book was in 1995, The Jew in the Modern World, a documentary history by uh, Paul Mendes Flor and Judah Reinhardt's. Leading figure in the struggle of traditional rabbis against reform was the highly esteemed Talmudic scholar Moses Sofer, known as the Chatam Sofer. Opposition to reform was soon extended to all attempts to integrate Jews and Judaism into the modern world to preserve the integrity of their ancient faith. Jews were urged to maintain not only the halakha, but a distinctive, even segregative style of life. He spoke of shalem, standing for shame, lashon malbush, right? name, language, and dress. And he presented these most forcefully in his widely read ethical testament. And uh, I'll offer as an anecdote. So I have a son who's currently studying for the, what's called the Bagrut, a uh, matriculation exam in Israeli high schools. He's in 11th grade. He just took his history Bagrut yesterday. So over Shabbat, we were studying some things and uh, we were going over you know, his notes and I saw there's, you know, there, there's always a question about uh, responses to enlightenment and reform, you know, a question relating to what are the different types of responses and, you know, what are the differences between uh, neo-orthodoxy and orthodoxy. And, and you see from what they're, what, you know, from the way that they ask the questions that like, they're just looking for you to spit back Chatam Sofer, Chadashan Asur Minat Torah, Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch, Torah in Derech Eretz, meaning these are like the bullet points, the bumper sticker, the bumper sticker version of, of it. That's what you get. You get Chadash Asur Minat Torah. So in this view, which is still the prevailing view, based on the work of Jacob Katz and Moshe Samet, the orthodoxy uh, that was developed, invented, by Khatam Sofer, a segregationist, rigid, unchanging, ultra-conservative, strict, uh, elevates po prohibitions, doesn't distinguish between different gradations, whether something is a mere custom and something is uh, black letter biblical law. That's the prevailing approach. What I'd like to do today is look at directly at the sources and see if we can complicate that view a little bit or a lot bit. Um, first, some biographical information. So we saw in the, we saw here, he was born in 1762, died in 1839. So his life really straddled the end of the 17th, the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. The turn of the century was about the midpoint of his life. 
He was born in Frankfurt. In fact, all of his responsa, almost all of his responsa, he signs off uh, Moshe Hakatan Moshe Sofer Mi Papdam, right? The insignificant, the minor Moshe Sofer in Papdam, you know, the Jewish acronym of, for Frankfurt, Frankfurt am Main. That's where he was from. And he was from a pedigreed rabbinic family in Frankfurt. His great great grand his great grandfather was the Maharsha Shach, right? One of the leading rabbis of Frankfurt or and of and of Central Europe in his day. And his rabbeim were Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz, the Baal Hafla, the author of Hafla, and uh, Rabbi Nathan Adler, Nelson Adler, who was a Kabbalist and also a uh, a brilliant and creative um, figure, and also a very controversial figure in his day. Uh, he actually left Frankfurt when he was a teenager, when he was 16 years old. He left Frankfurt because his rabbi, his controversial rabbi, Nathan Adler, was banished from the city and was wandering around in Central Europe. So he went with him to Bohemia and Moravia. And eventually, Nathan Adler moved back to Frankfurt. But Hatam Sofer, for the rest of his life, he never went back to Frankfurt. So from the time he was a teenager, he was in Central Europe, in the Habsburg realms. His first uh, rabbinic position was in the city of Dresnitz, which is today in the Czech Republic in the Bohemian part of the Czech Republic. That's uh, south, uh, southwestern, southeastern Czech Republic. Um, his second one, which was he was there for he was there for about six years. The second one, he was there for about a decade. That was in the city of Mattersdorf, or what's today in Austria is known as Mattersburg. Then it was part of the Hungarian crown, crown lands, um, and it was part of a, it's a part of a group, Matersdorf is a group of about seven communities, um, maybe a little bit more, but they were known as the seven communities, the Sheva Kehilot, or the, the Sieben Gemeinden, that are in the part of Austria called Bergenland on the Austrian-Hungarian border today, so it's uh, Deutschkreuz and, uh, and Lachenbach, and uh, Eisenstadt and Matersdorf. I like to call that region the Seven Dorfs, but that's me. And I work that joke in at every possible occasion. Um, Iberland, Iberland. So this is, yes, this is Iberland. We're not even, this lecture, we're not even gonna touch Unterland. Um, some of Hassam Sofer's students, just to, uh, to clarify what Rabbi Silver is saying, uh, Oberland and Unterland are, two regions of, of historical Hungary, meaning we're not talking about, we're not talking about today's Hungary. Today's Hungary is about one third of territory that was included in pre-World War I Hungary before the Treaty of uh, Trianon, which ended World War I. Uh, Oberland is the northeastern part of Hungary, northwestern part of Hungary. The area basically from, from Budapest and north and west Right, so it includes the Bergenland, it includes much of what's today Western Slovakia uh, and, and Northwest Hungary proper. Uh, and Unterland is, you know, it was sort of, con it was considered a backwater. It was much more religiously conservative. It was much more Hasidic. Um, and that's, you're talking about regions like uh, Transylvania of Marmarosh, if these names mean anything to you. 
or of uh, the uh, Subcarpathian Ruthenia, Munkac and Chust and Ungvar, cities like that, and far eastern Slovakia, like uh, cities like Michalovts. And even though they were both part of Hungary, these were very distinct cultural territories. Oberland was much more um, affected by German culture. They were less, they, they, they tended to speak German, not Yiddish. They tended to, um, the Jews that lived there tended to migrate from Bohemia and Moravia southward during the, uh, there was a time that there was, there were laws passed in Moravia and Bohemia that only one Jew per family could inherit the right to live there. It was called the Familiens Law. So a lot of the Jews from Oberland moved south into Hungary from Bohemia and Moravia, whereas in the eastern parts, in Underland, the Jews that were there moved there generally from Galicia, from the, the part of Poland that was annexed by Austria uh, in, you know, in, the, in the partitions of Poland in the late 1700s. So that's the, so you had some real cultural differences and we are gonna see a little bit how Hungary was a little bit of a melting pot between the more German inflected forms of Jewishness and the more Polish inflected forms of Jewishness. And this came to a head in various customs, uh, especially customs concerning facial hair, beard growing and shaving. Um, so those were, you know, th those were very, very much part of his landscape. Um, in 1806, he got the job as the chief rabbi of the city of was then known as Pressburg. Today it is Bratislava, the capital city of Slovakia. It was one of the largest Jewish communities in Hungary. It was between it and Budapest didn't exist yet. Budapest was, as many people know, Budapest was two cities. It was Buda and Pest on opposite sides of the Danube River. So the larger community in Khatam Sofer's time, the much larger community was the Pest side. I'm sorry, it was the Buddha side. And uh, Obuda, which is the older part of Buddha, or Altofen, that was probably the largest Jewish community in Hungary. And the second largest was Pressburg. And it wasn't just a large community, it was a pedigreed community. It was a community that went back um, hundreds of years already at this point. Okay. From there, so he took that job in 1806 and he remained there for the rest of his life. So for 33 years, he was the rabbi there. And it was there that he, you know, it was, that was most of his, that, that constituted most of his productive life. And he died there and was buried there. His, his grave is still there and it's a pilgrimage site. Um, in terms of his works, he was, um, he wrote a ton. He didn't publish he published barely anything in his lifetime, but posthumously, I mean, he just kept meticulous records and notebooks of all of his ideas and all of his chidushim and all of his responsa. And he wrote ethical, he wrote an ethical will. He used to write amulets. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of material. The three main sources that we have and just main by, by volume is his responsa, right? His answers to halachic questions. Um, sometimes questions, usually questions that he was asked, and sometimes it was just he wrote for himself what he thought about a particular issue. We might get into one example of that. Uh, so there were about 1,400 of those. 
He also has two very dense volumes of sermons, homilies that he gave in Pressburg, mostly in Pressburg, although also in the other places. And he kept them, he kept notebooks and they were eventually published from those notebooks. And the third, I guess the third leg of that, you know, of his, the third of his major works are, is a commentary, a running commentary on the Talmud, the Chidushim, right? His, his, his novelle, right? His novel interpretations of the Talmud. And now you're thinking, wait a second, here's a guy that said that you're not allowed to innovate, that innovation is forbidden by the Torah, anything new, how can somebody like that be writing chidushim? If that's what you're wondering, you're not the first to ask that question. And that's something that's going to be very much at the heart of what we're going to discuss this evening. Okay, what I want to do at this point is I want to look at some of the writings that from which the prevailing view is generated. Where do they get this from? Where do we get this idea of, you know, Khatam Sofer being this, uh, this ultra conservative inventor of, small c conservative, inventor of, um, inventor of orthodoxy, creator of orthodoxy, um, rigid, unchanging, etc. How does he get that reputation? So let's take a look. So one of the sources that a lot of people point to is his ethical will. Now his ethical will and his, he wrote it a couple of years before he died in 1837. Um, and he writes, he addresses it to his family, to his descendants. And he has a whole list of things, you know, he tells his granddaughters, make sure your skirts aren't too short. And, you know, he tells all of his descendants, don't go to the theaters. And he tells them what to learn and he tells them, this dispenses advice at the end of his life. And one of the things that he says them is, he's a harumi shinui shame lashon bush. Beware of changing your lang your names, meaning keep Jewish names, Jewish language, i.e. Yiddish, umalbush, and continue to dress as Jews, umalbush Yisrael, dress like Jews, chas, um, shinui shame lashon malbush chas meaning God forbid that you should change any of these things. Visiman, right, a mnemonic for remembering this, says, Vayavo Yaakov Shalem Irshem. Yaakov came Shalem, whole, complete, to the city of Shechem. Roshay Tevot, so that's an acronym. Shalem is an acronym for Shem Lashon Malbush. Now, there are two other places. So, a couple of things about this. Number one, he, this he writes to his descendants. He didn't think that this was halacha. He didn't think that this was for everybody. He wrote this to his descendants. Additionally, he mentions this two or three times. This triad of name, language, and dress, which is how he gets to that triad is a separate question. And it's something that I, I wrote a paper on that. You can find it on my academia page, where that's, a, uh, that's an interesting story in its own right. But he mentions it a grand total of three times in his life. He mentions it in his ethical will. He mentions it in a drusha from the year of about 1810, the early 1810s. And he mentions it in his commentary on the Haggadah, where the part of the Haggadah, where it says, that the Israelites in Egypt did not, you know, they remained distinct. They, they remained distinguished from the Egyptians. His comment is, yeah, they didn't change their name, language, and dress. That's it. Right? And the, the Haggadah was not, 
published in his lifetime also. Um, so those are the three. Those are the three times that he mentions it. But you also have the triad in the writings of contemporaries of Rav Mendel of Rimenov in Galicia, and you have it in the writings of various uh, itinerant preachers in Prussia. So yes, Hatam Sofer mentions it. Other people also mention, mention it. It's clear that this triad was sort of taking hold at that time, at the beginning of uh, the 1800s. It really bursts the banks long after the Khatam Sofer died in a book called Lev Ivri by Rabbi Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, which is a commentary on Khatam Sofer's ethical will. So it's associated with Khatam Sofer, but only a generation after he died. And that's really when it becomes a slogan. That's when it becomes a motto. Um, so this ethical will was sort of repurposed, repurposed for that. Um, continuing on to some of the other sources. So here is an exchange that he had with Rav Tzvi Hirsch Chayis, or Maharitz Chayis, who was a, a fascinating character, and he tended to be a he was a he there's a dissertation the dissertation there's a dissertation on Maritz Chayis that was written by Bruria Hutner David uh, the daughter of Rav Yitzchak Hutner and the founder of BJJ the seminary in Jerusalem Beis Yaakov Seminary in Jerusalem who herself a very a fascinating person who is said to have edited the volumes of um, Pachad Yitzchak her father's Sefer. Um, and her, the subtitle of her dissertation is something like Between Two Worlds or, you know, between the Haskalah and Orthodoxy. This, he was torn between, the, you know, he had one foot in either of those worlds. Um, and more, we'll, we'll discuss him more as time goes, you know, during the course of this lecture. So he had several, he was a young man when Khatam Sofer died. Khatam Sofer was sort of like the elder, the, you know, his reputation was, he was in his seventies. He was a well-known figure. Um, and so he used to write to the Khatam Sofer. Khatam Sofer, there are about six chuvo, there are six responses that Khatam Sofer writes to Sviher uh, Shchayis. Sometimes he deletes the name, which is an interesting I mean, that wasn't his choice because it, these weren't published in his lifetime, but it's an interesting choice because it shows that there's a certain, you know, when you elide the name, it's showing like, oh, we, you know, we don't want to show that the Chasm Sofer was talking to such people. Um, so he responds in, and this is actually also published by Maritz Chias in one of his books. So he says to him, I'm going to respond to it. This is an excerpt of a longer response. Ashiv miyad. I will uh, respond right away. And that's something that he writes a lot. He responds right away. They, they said that he would often, he would usually respond the same day that he got the, that he got the question. So that I, to dispel from your pure heart, I'm going to explain to you what I mean by a chadash asor benatora. I didn't say that, I didn't compare things to orla, I didn't compare things. Is there a shortage of 
things that are prohibited in Judaism that I can't, you know, like when I see something I don't like, I compare it to Chadash. Why don't I compare it to Orlo? Why don't I compare it to Kilaim? Why don't I compare it to, to, to Pigul? Chadash, why? Because I consider from the elders, from my teachers, that it's proper to be one of the upholders of the Torah. And they uh, were cautious about opening things up, about you know making openings, or to seek leniencies, for the the rogues, for the uh, for the dissolute amongst our people. Because that's what they want, meaning that, that's what this is all want. If they find the tiniest opening, like the, like a thin needle, if there are two parrots, I'll open it parrots. They're going to exploit that and they're going to open it. There's going to be breach after breach after breach. The particular issue that he's talking about here is something it's about something about burial i can't remember about leaving leaving people leaving bodies to be overnight before burial um where maritz highest was like saying yeah you can you know there's definitely grounds to do it and the khatam sofer was vehemently opposed because he saw that he saw where it was coming from and he thought that since this is coming from pressure by the famously, there was a controversy in the time of Moses Mendelssohn about um, the, the German lands made a the certain German lands made a law that a burial had to had to be three days after death, and there was a large controversy then about whether or not Jewish law could accept this. And Chatam Sofer is saying here, like if it came from somewhere else, maybe I would have a different attitude. But the people that are that are asking for this, the people that want this, it's not because they think that that's what the Torah thinks we should do. It's not because they think that this is right. It's because they're trying to make the Torah fit. They're trying to make the Torah conform to whatever the prevailing notions of um, proper burial are. And that's something that I'm gonna oppose. And then he says, since there's no, you know, saying something is doraita or saying something is dorabanan, there's no today, meaning forbidden is forbidden and it's not like we punish, right? Because so if something is dorabanan, you're not gonna get lashes for it, but we don't administer lashes today anyway. So there's no difference whether it's a doraita or a dorabanan. Betovla halot iser. So why not upgrade the prohibition? Why not say, instead of saying that, oh yeah, this is forbidden rabbinically, upgrade it. Say that this is forbidden rabbinically. Umar Neroyair, you, sir, you rely on You're relying on this rejected opinion of the Chavot Yair. He was a minority opinion. It was one, uh, one opinion. That this whole issue of halanat hamet, of leaving the, the, the body overnight, is only midrabanan. And he says, but in, and, and that's a stronger basis for leniency. But he says, in Galina Devar, you, you don't, we don't tell people that. We don't tell people that such a position exists. Because due to our sins, Rabu Elu Bizmane, Ad Shio Mru, Ina Nuchoshin with Divre Rabanan, Hashem Lotziva. 
There are a lot of people today who say, who, who would, if you tell them it's a Durabanan, they'll say, oh, we don't care about Durabanans. God didn't tell us to do this. So we don't care about that. If you tell me it's a Durabanan or that there's one opinion that says it's a Durabanan, they're going to be like, ah, oh, okay, great. And this is even more, this is reinforced by this next response. He's asked by the authorities. He's asked by the authorities in, um, you know, that, or, so, or a group of rabbis was asked by the Habsburg authorities, what types of relationships do, does the Jewish tradition consider to be incestuous? What, what are the forbidden marriages, forbidden sexual relations between, um, you know, that, that are forbidden? Yeah, this is this was asked by asked by the Stadt Alteria. It means like the the town elders. And so the way that the question was posed to them, they wanted to they they asked us which relationships are forbidden to the Jewish people. According to the law of our Torah, our, our holy Torah. And which relationships do the rabbis have the power to permit temporarily? That's how the question was posed. And he says, Before I even answer, I'm going to say, Yes, some relationships, some forbidden relationships are explicit in the Torah. And there are some that were forbidden by the rabbis. If they see a together in order to create a, a safeguard. And there's no difference between them. Because it's all from the Torah, meaning that what the rabbis added to the Torah is also part of the Torah. And then he concludes the response. All of these relations whether it's Doraita or Dirabanan, Ain Koach Lashum Beitin, Bishum Makom, no Beitin in no place is authorized, Bishumzman, and at no time, Latir Ulakel, Klau Uklau, to be lenient and to permit such relations. Okay, so here we see, we're starting to get a picture of where this idea comes from. Here's somebody that's, we, we see all of these points that number one, he's not willing to make any allowances for modernity for even when the pressure is coming from the government or from people who think that the ideas and ideals espoused by the government are right and are true, correct? Um, that he's rigid, he's not willing to change, that he's ultra conservative, that he's strict. Although, you know, I don't know how many people are, you know, pining away to marry their nieces, but, you know, or uncles. Um, but um, whichever it is, that's the, uh, that's what, um, you know, that, that's the Khumra that he's talking about. Um, and we see that he's elevating prohibitions. He's taking Durabanans and he's turning them into to Doraitas. He's taking rabbinic law and turning it into biblical law. Now he has a whole approach to that, meaning that yes, the, the Torah itself does authorize, uh, you know, does authorize future sages to enact decrees to and to interpret the Torah. Um, and the, the, so the authority of the rabbis to create law is itself anchored in the Torah. But the only difference would be 
that in, in terms of punishment, right? If, if a, the violation of a rabbinic law does not entail, um, does not entail biblical punishment, but the violation of Torah law does. Meaning if someone violated their Rabbanan on Shabbat, um, they wouldn't be chayav skila. They wouldn't be, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't incur the death penalty. Today, there's no death penalty. So really, what's the difference between violating a right and a Dirabanan? Now, of course, there are other differences, right? A Dirabanan, if it's b'makom tsa'ar, b'makom hefsed meruba, b'makom tzorech rabim, there are all kinds of heterim that are available for Dorabanans that are not available on Doraitas, but that's in the application. That's not, it, it's the Dorabanans, you know, there, there are more grounds for leniency, but that doesn't make them any less mandatory a priori than biblical Torah law. Okay. Um, so now, having seen this, having seen where this idea comes from, we can start complicating things. We can start making things a little bit, uh, we can show how things are, how this view of Khatam Sofer um, can be a little bit, a little bit simplistic. So this first one, the tshuva of the Khatam Sofer, Yoridea number 19, he dates most of his chuvot, meaning he writes the date and he writes the place on most of his chuvot. So we can really, you can reconstruct his whole life based on that. And maybe uh, if we get through, you know, depending on how much time we have, um, I can show some, some maps that uh, a project that I'm involved in, we produced maps, where the Hassan Sofer wrote to and when. And it's cool beans. And if we get a chance, we'll take a look. Um, so this is the first time that he uses Chadash Asur Min HaTorah in all of his written works. This is the first time that he says Chadash Asur Min HaTorah. And let's see what he's talking about. So the question is this, he nay, he's writing to a student, says, Mashahir Ashtahaulam, you made a big stink. You made a, you made a, um, you made a lot of noise. That the innards of nevelot and trefot, of improperly slaughtered animals, are sold to Gentiles. And this is a practice that, it's an age-old practice, and they, they still do it in the United States today. Right? It's too difficult to, uh, what's called trabering, it's too difficult to to take out the hind, to take out the sciatic nerve from the hindquarters. So when a um, you know kosher slaughterhouses after they after they slaughter the animal, they'll keep the forequarters for the kosher market and they'll sell the hindquarters. And as we all know, not every shchita, not every shchita is a good shchita. There are mistakes, and there are sometimes the animal is diseased, and sometimes the animal is. Um, and sometimes the, the slaughtering itself was improper. So what do you do? You can, they're not kosher. What do you do with them? Sell them to non-Jews. And that has always been, that has long been Jewish practice. Somebody had a problem with it based on some question that he had. Maybe it was that. I, I don't even know. Um, 
In his answer, Chatam Sofer says, Do you know that the, the sages took great, they bent over backwards to permit eating chadash. In Ashkenaz, Ashkenazic custom was that we're not what's called makpit on yashan. We do not wait until after Pesach to eat grain that was grown in the current crop. And that, it would seem, directly contravenes halacha. Sephardim historically have been makpit on this. Ashkenazim historically have not. And the sages of Ashkenaz bent over backwards to justify this. So he's talking about chadash. That's, you know, the original meaning of chadash. Chadash lefnei ha'omer, right? So the, 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 our minog heter, our permissive custom of eating chadash before the omer, before the, the day, uh, the second day of Pesach. Why? The hakol minog, all to justify the existing practice. We call makol, bal nevesh yochush la'atzmo. Of course, if you're a spiritually inclined person, which is a very poor translation of bal nefesh, bal nefesh, somebody's a bal nefesh, somebody is really pious, somebody is really um, sincerely religious. They can observe this chumrah individually. Meaning not publicly, you don't impose it on anyone else. Yachush la'atzmo. For him, they can observe it themselves. This is v'chein mili tuva, and there's also a lot of other issues. We shouldn't be so quick to start innovating new prohibitions. And so now he's already used the word chadash twice. One, to talk about the iser chadash. And the second time, to innovate new prohibitions. Meaning, and he's arguing here, even though the Gemara says chadash asur min torah Ashkenazic practice is chadash mutar. We do eat chadash. Okay? And so now watch what he does. We shouldn't be too quick to innovate new stringencies. And certainly we shouldn't be innovating new leniencies. Because Jewish custom is itself Torah. What Jews do, that's Torah. It's a text that has to be understood and read because it's Torah. The haklal, and a general rule is hechadash asur Torah, right? So he's clearly, he has, he has a good sense of humor. He's clearly using this in an ironic way. He's talking about the fact that we say chadash is mutter. And then he says, yeah, if you want to take the rule, take it chadash asur Torah. We eat chadash, why? Because to innovate a new stringency is aser. And that which is old, is better than it. A year later, he's asked, now this is a controversy that really, we heard a little bit about this controversy from Professor Brown two weeks ago, the shiurim, right? What are the biblical, biblical quantities, minimum requisite quantities in the language of Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. How much matzah do you have to eat? How much maror do you have to eat? How, how long is an amma? How big does the sukkah have to be? There are so many halachot that have to do with um, biblical weights or you know, halachic weights and measures and distances. What does it mean? But what, what are these 
measures. So the Node of Yehuda in the late 18th century ended up coming to the conclusion that we are vastly underestimating what these quantities are supposed to be. And he instituted new Chumrot based on that, although he didn't really publish it. He buried it in the back of a, of a book of Chidushim. He didn't write it in his halachic works. And it wasn't until the 20th century with Chazonish that you heard about a couple of weeks ago that it really became a thing. But there were people that were worried about this. So one student of the Chatam Sofer, he, he reads what Nodabi Yehuda has to say about Shiurim. And he's concerned that the etrogim that are on the market aren't big. Right? That if Chatam so if Nodabi Yehuda is right, that our eggs have, the eggs nowadays are much smaller than the eggs were in the time of Chazal. And that really the measurement of an egg of a kibetza is much bigger than we think it is, then our etrogim don't measure up. And so the Chazam Sofer, it's a longer response on, but he says, don't worry about it. He says, Im habeitzim, gama If the eggs are different sizes, then the etrogim are also different sizes, right? So if the eggs are smaller, and the eggs, you know, at maturity are smaller than they used to be. And the same thing with the esrogim. And the esrogim, since they shrunk, and since a fully grown esrog is smaller than it used to be a fully grown esrog, you can shrink the minimum shear of the esrog accordingly. The kach and he says, what's good for us, it would behoove us, right? Don't make, don't make us crazy. Right? Don't frighten Jews with all these new things. And he says, right? And he's, that's a double entendre. The Pasuk in Hazinu is it's, these are things that are, it never dawned on our parents. It never, it never, uh, it never occurred to our parents, but he's also playing on the word shiurim, because that's the topic here, right? Rabbi. These were Rabbi, not the shiurim that our forefathers used. Rabbi Fisher? Yes. So the play on it, the Pasuk is lo sa'arum, with a sin. He's playing ah. sa'arum and turns it into a shear. And the first part is chadashim mikarov bo. So he's actually playing on chadash again. He's a terrific sense of humor. Chadash yeah. is mutim in that Torah because chadash is asa from the Torah. That's the first one. Now the sa'arum becomes shi'arum. So. Right. Thank you. Thank you. That these are not the measurements that our fathers used. I've already said my piece. And you see that little chukchik, that little um, uh, quotation mark in the middle of the word hachadash. So usually or often when a rabbi in a rabbinic work puts, puts that there, either it means it's an acronym or he's saying, pay attention to this. I'm doing something clever here. And that's what he's doing. Chadash right? Chadash is like, I'm not talking about the, that Chadash. I'm talking about this Chadash. And he's clearly, he signals to us, it's like sarcastic quotes, right? He's signaling to us that he's, that he's making a joke, that he's making a pun, okay? And both of these cases that we've seen here, um, from 1819 and 1820, he invokes this rule of Chadash Asur Min HaTorah. He invokes it, he's saying, don't make me crazy with your new isurim. Don't, don't show me these new prohibitions that you're trying to invent. 
These are new prohibitions. Our fathers never heard of these prohibitions. Our grandmothers never heard of these prohibitions. Stop bothering us with them, right? So yes, it's true that there's a certain conservatism here, but it's the opposite of a strict conservatism here. It's a, it's a liberal conservatism. This is something that we've always treated as being permissible. So we'll continue to treat it as permissible because minhag Yisrael Torahu. If this is what Jews do, then this is Torah. Okay. Um, and one final, one final thing here where he says something, and this is, this is somewhat, his drashot are sometimes hard to understand. Um, here in a drashah, he says, he quotes the Mishnah in Avot that talks about damash tashiv apikores. You should know what to respond to a heretic. He says, This is the crux of our response to a heretic. Some things are higher than high. And we shouldn't try to be too clever. We shouldn't be overly clever. We shouldn't be overly sophisticated. We shouldn't come up with innovations. And not everything does the intellect have access to. Meaning there's a certain epistemological, epistemic humility that he's expressing here. And indeed, when the Apikores sees, what do we do all day? Well, we're sitting and learning. What are we learning? He's like, well, we're coming up with chidusha. We're coming up with innovations. The more innovative you can, more innovations you can come up with in the Beit Midrash, that's more commendable. So Yasser Apikores v'yomar, the Apikoros is going to say, I don't understand what's going on here. Like, either way, like, do you have access? Do you, like, can you understand things? Can you not understand things? He says, so he'll re- that'll force him to reconsider and he'll say, if something runs counter to logical syllogism, all we have is what's written. Um, Meaning he's saying that on one hand, right? On one hand, I'm saying innovation is forbid. On the other hand, what do we do all day? We innovate. The Abikaras is gonna come and say like, what's going, you know, are you, are you innovative or are you not? And he's saying that what we're gonna force him to think, what we're gonna force him to reconsider is that um, if the Chiddush is, if your Chiddush, if your innovation is rational, um, is irrational, then I'm, I'm, I lost his train of thought here. I had it earlier today, but he's, it's counter, what um, so from what we've seen now, there are a few things that um, that have emerged. One, when we talk about chadash asur min haTorah, we're talking about a public policy, right? He's talking about 
in his explanation to Maritz Chayas, he talks about his opposition to conscious innovation, attempts to improve, right? We think it should be this way and therefore, meaning you know what the improvement is gonna be and therefore we're gonna innovate, we're gonna engineer um, an innovation. This is what we would call reform. I mean, that's what reform literally means, a small or reform. Second, we see that he says, both Lakula and Lachumra. Right? That he's not only Lakula, it's not only, it's not only, he doesn't, he's not just opposed to leniencies, he's also opposed to stringencies. Now, there's a key issue here that it will, we'll see it more clearly in some of the other sources. According to the Khatam Sofer, and this is part of the key difference between, a key point of contention between Khatam Sofer and Maritz Chius. Maritz Chius was what we would call today a positivist. He thinks that all of the rules for interpreting the Torah were given at Sinai, and there's no, there's no longer any need for, to have any sort of divine input into the ongoing process, right? He takes a radical understanding, or maybe not so radical understanding, maybe not more radical than Rambam, of the idea that Torah lo the Torah is no longer in he any in heaven, and therefore any sort of um, any sort of charismatic or you know any sort of divine input is forbidden. Um, whereas Chatam Sofer, we started to see in his ideas about Minag Yisrael Torah that there is some sort of collective unconscious, right? That we can trust the instincts of the Jewish people as a whole or specifically God-fearing Jews or the sages, right? And because their instincts, their intuitions are, are divinely guided, are divinely shaped. Um, we don't have to be afraid of we don't, we don't need to, we don't need anything new, right? The idea of consciously coming up with an innovation implies that there's something wrong with things the way that they are, and therefore we have to engineer a change. But if you believe, as the Khatam Sofer does, that the entire process is guided, then we don't have to outthink God. Right, and that's what he's. You don't have to. You don't have to overthink this. Right, there's not everything that the. So, so what's he talking about when he talks about chiddush? When he talks about chiddush of you know the kind of experience that he would the, the kind of chiddush that he would experience when learning, he's talking about something that it's spontaneous. It's not overthought. You learn a Gemara, you learn a Tshuva, you learn something, and this is how your mind processes it. And this is how it comes off to you. It appears to you at first glance, right? And he says that that process is itself shaped by the divine, is something that you have access, that something that, that God influences, as it were, 
how the Torah is developing, how halacha is developing. Was, this is a form of what would be called uh, progressive revelation. Not, it's not a radical type of progressive revelation, but it is a type of progressive revelation. And we'll see soon that he, he's very clear on this point. The idea that there are, we don't always have access to the truth of the Torah is something that, you know, that, that, that we can't presume to know it all, to know all of the Torah, to know what the Torah's rationales are. That's something that recurs in his writings. So this is a hesped that he gave in 1812 to Rabbi David Zinsheim. Rabbi David Zinsheim was the rabbi of Strasbourg. He was the head of the committee of nobles that Napoleon convened. Uh, and he posed to them several questions about, um, about Judaism and whether Judaism is compatible with a modern nation state. Um, the, and the, that document itself, the, you know, Sinsheim's responses to Napoleon are worthy of close reading. And uh, it's a brilliant, phenomenal document. Uh, it's, a, it's a lesson in diplomatic writing. Like he says things like Napoleon asks, um, are Jews opposed to marrying Christians? And uh, you know, his answer is, well, we're no more opposed to marrying Christians than Christians are to marrying us. Meaning he, all very diplomatically worded, all very, um, you know, sometimes it's even more, it's even cleverer. Um, he was a sort of the ambassador of the Torah to the greatest, you know, the most powerful man of his day. So the Chassam Sofer gives a really nice eulogy, a really beautiful eulogy. And again, it's worth, it, it, this was also an, a, a drusha on the eighth day of Tevet. The eighth day of Tevet is a significant day in the Jewish calendar, and especially on Chatam Sofer's calendar. The eighth of Tevet, there's a tradition that goes back over a thousand years that the eighth of Tevet was the day that the Torah was translated into Greek. Now, Chatam Sofer, being who he was, and constantly being concerned about how Judaism is being interpreted, being translated, and being conveyed in the world at large, he was drawn to this day like, like a moth to a campfire. He was he gave a drasha on this day in most years in his book on drasha. I mean, it's two pretty thick volumes, uh, his, um, his sermons. He has about 40 pages, 40 to 50 pages on Sukkot. Okay? He has about 65 pages on the 8th of Teve. Okay? So he's writing more about this date than he's writing about Sukkot, which is a pretty phenomenal thing considering that this is not a significant date on the Jewish calendar for most people. I somewhat observe it because I'm a translator. So I take that day as a day of introspection about my job, my role, and what it means to translate Torah for the, you know, for the world. Chatam Sofer wasn't a translator, but he's drawn to it. And he took that opportunity also to uh, eulogize Rabbi Sinzheim, who had passed away about a month earlier. And in this drasha, he he talks about um, he he gives a parable as to why he thinks that the translation of the Torah is problematic. 
And we'll see a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And then he talks about the role of Zintang. And he says that one of the problems is that once you have, once you translate the Torah into the language of philosophy, in the language of culture, people are gonna start interpreting the Torah only according to that language, only according to the language of reason. And that's a problem, why? Just, they're gonna begin to expound on these silly ideas. Why is not the milk of a non-kosher animal not kosher, prohibited? Because it causes this or that sickness or blockage based on science, meaning they'll turn Torah into a rational book of natural science. Moses, yes, Moshe Rabbeinu, he was a great scientist. He was a great, he knew a lot. He was a, he was a very wise man who knew science. Achim Cain, but these people would continue saying, Achim Cain, but if that's the case, Right? It's simply silly, it's simply stupid to forbid the milk of a kosher animal just because a non-Jew milked the animal. Without a Jew witnessing it. And they're going to say it all these things about all every mitzvah. They're going to start to rationalize them. And once you rationalize them, that opens the door to stop observing them. And certainly when it comes to things like Durabanans, like which is a, an Isur de Rabbanan, which is rabbinically forbidden. If they had only considered, if they would wise up, they would understand in all of these matters, all of these Isur de Rabbanan, there are other reasons. And that's the same phrase that we saw before. Right? That we don't know the reasons for the Torah. There are reasons for the halachot that are higher than high. There are angels that are appointed over, over these uh, benevolent and antagonizing angels are appointed over each matter. Then they'll understand. All of the rabbinic enactments and all of the rabbinic safeguards, they all have roots on high. And then maybe they'll shut up. Maybe they'll shut their mouth. So this is, again, we, we see, you know, when we talk about elevating a Durabanan to the level of a Doraita. So it's true that he's saying that everything, even rabbinic enactments, even custom, are Torah, are on some level the word of God. And that we don't always know the reason for it. Um, the community, we don't know why the community does what it does. We don't know why these practices emerged. But if Jewish people do it, then it's Torah. Um, I would say that there's an almost proto-Freudian aspect going on here, that there's some sort of, or I guess this would be Jungian, um, the idea of a collective unconscious, the idea that um, the community practice 
itself has reasons that aren't always known to the community itself, that the reasons are, the, the rationales are inaccessible to us. We don't know them, we can't know them. Maybe we can discover them, but we will never exhaust their meanings. So that's something that's you know, like, in, in, in that sense, learning halacha is a sort of, you know, is a sort of psychology, is a sort of psychotherapy. We're just digging deeper and deeper into our own collective unconscious, into our own collective psyche, you know, trying to understand why we do the things that we do. Okay. Before going further, this is a um, you know, one more chuva first, before, a couple more chuvas before going further. This is a halacha where he, he's trying to explain there's a mitzvah in the Torah that everybody has to write a Sefer Torah. We don't all write Sefer Torah. Not everybody owns a Sefer Torah. That's because we rely on the Rosh. The Rosh said that one may uh, fulfill this mitzvah by buying books, by buying svarim. Now, according, of course, the Rosh was talking about manuscripts, but today we generally, we fulfill this by buying books. So how can one buy books to fulfill a mandate to write a Sefer Torah? And Chasam Sofer answers, we, we can't understand any of the Torah. The Torah is entirely and completely inaccessible. Without the words of the Shas, of the, of the Talmud, of the Gemara, and the codes. To interpret all of the words of the commandments of the Torah, it's impossible. Even Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know it all. Right? The, the Torah is, in his, in Chasam Sofer's mind, the Torah is literally infinite. The, in, infinite. the gates of interpretation are never closed. There's no, there's no fixed, there's no limited corpus of what the Torah is or what the Torah can be. So in Cain, so if that's the case, you need a complete original Torah scroll because otherwise that's the only thing that's complete. Nothing else can be complete, right? This, the Torah itself somehow contains it all. Any other work doesn't contain it all. But you still need something that you can learn. And therefore you have to buy other farms so that you can learn. The Torah, you can't learn the Torah. Because the Torah is just, it's, it's too infinite to begin learning it. What you can learn is other books so that you can start to learn them. The Sefer Torah, because when it comes to the Torah itself, we're... We're too limited to understand it. Right? So now it's not just, I'm suggesting that he's not just talking about hyperbole. Here. You're not, this is not just hyperbolic. I think that epistemologically, he thinks that we, we really, he just can't, it's impossible for human beings to, to grasp this all. So then according to him, how does the entire process of halacha work? How do we how do we claim to understand something? How can I pass in a halacha and say that, yeah, I learned it and this is what the halacha should be? So he answers that. And he answers that in his in the next letter that he writes to the to, to Maritz Chayis. 
also is if you if you look at the date on the first one, this is about a week later. Um, so they were corresponding, and I guess the mail, you know, he was in Galicia. One was in Galicia, the other one was in Pressburg. I guess the mail is pretty good. If you know, he writes him a letter, and then eight days later he's writing him another letter. That means that it got to the letter got to Zovkev, which is where Maritzchayes was, and Maritzchayes responded and sent the letter back to Hasan Sofer all within eight days. So really not bad. I, I think you know it's better than the postal service today. Um, I just sent something to Poland like a month ago and it still hasn't gotten there. Um, so they're talking about the issue that I raised before. What are the source, meaning what, the parameters of lo bashamayim here. What does it mean that the Torah is no longer in heaven? Is there any room for any sort of revelatory input even today? And so there are all kinds of, I mean, there's an entire book called Shelot Uchuvot Min right? And it's written by one of the Rishonim. And these are all responses that he dreamed. And it's sometimes paskin halacha lomaisa. Um, and there's places where the, even the Beit Yosef says that, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't sure about this halacha. And then I had a dream that the, that the Abu Draham is right. And so I paskin like the Abu Draham. So he says, he quotes a rivid, where the rivid says in Hilchot Lulav, Kvar Hofia Ruach HaKodesh Bebeit Midrashenu. There was Ruach HaKodesh, the divine spirit, appeared in our Beit Midrash and told us to pask in a certain way. In a mach, there was a machloket, there was a dispute between two Tanaim, and this Ruach HaKodesh showed up in the Beit Midrash of the rivid and said, you got to pask in this way. This is the halacha. So Chasam Sofer tries to unpack that. Says, and I apologize for not translating this. This was a little bit long of a longer passage. Um, the Ruach, God's spirit inspires uh, those who um, engage in the Torah for its own sake. They are privileged to um, they they're able to um, intuit the truth. They're able to, you know, they're, they're in tune with the truth, with the truth. Even if by naturally, they're just simply not smart enough to really encompass all of this. God in his grace, gives them wisdom temporarily. And then he goes on, I'm going to move a little faster now. Um, he goes on to say, he, he calls this in the last line here of this first paragraph, shel it's a type of prophecy. It says it's the prophecy of wisdom. It's the prophecy that comes to you through wisdom, meaning you're not in, you're not an oracle, you're not prophesying, you're learning. But as you learn, if you learn Lishma, and as you really dedicate yourself to Torah, you will get some sort of prophetic insight that will allow you to intuit the right answer, to intuit the truth. And he says that this is, this is how he describes the process of Torah itself, the process of learning itself. Um, and then he goes on to say that 
the idea of low bashamayim he obviously we need an idea like low bashamayim he because otherwise we're you know if the torah can be if the torah can be changed if the or if the torah if god can come and say you know and uh change the torah by giving a new revelation then anything can happen and he quotes a gemara where some amin which probably is referring to some sort of early christian says to one of the amoraim that since the torah since the temple was destroyed your Torah no longer applies, a new Torah has been given, right? It sounds like Christianity. A New Testament has been given. Um, and then he goes on and he criticizes the, you know, the Mohammed, right? Naviha Yishmaelim, right? The, the, the prophet of the Ishmaelites, Mohammed. And then he says, Shabtai Tzvi, right? These are all people that they claimed some kind of new revelation and turned the Torah on its head. Right? So obviously, there's there, you need to have a, pro, a principle like Lova Shamayim, because otherwise you're susceptible to charlatans and you're susceptible to all kinds of you know tricksters. So Al Kain Klala Kaila Kadosh Baruch God gave us a rule. Shein Hanavi Rashi Lechadesh Shum Mitzvah Mehayashanot. The Torah that that a Navi, no prophet, is allowed to innovate any mitzvah beyond the old ones. But the old ones, they can still be clarified through the heavens, right? But but only through the sages of Israel, meaning that this prophetic revelation can only come, can only come through the minds of the sages of Israel, meaning through the Torah sages that they will get some sort of divine inspiration that's guiding their psaq, that's guiding their halacha. Um, and that is the only legitimate form of divine inspiration. What I want to do here, right, this is just a little bit of an aside because this is going to become an important point when I try to tie this all together. But I'm going to get through this really quickly where we, we mentioned that he left Ashkenaz, that he left the Rhineland when he was in his, um, when he was a teenager. Now, in that time, while he left, you know, after he left, um, the Rhineland of his youth ceased to exist. Now, you had, in the Rhineland, you had some of the, the most ancient Jewish communities, this communities of Spire, and Worms, and Mainz, and then Frankfurt already, you know, several hundred years before the Chatam Sofer, the, the city of Frankfurt was known as a center of Jewish learning. These are communities that recorded their customs meticulously. Several books of customs from these specific communities were published starting already in the 1400s. Um, these are, it was almost like, you know, like a, almost like a Jewish enchanted forest, like an enchanted landscape. And in the early 1800s, that enchanted landscape died. And everybody that lived there knew it. But Chatham Sofer didn't live there anymore. So that landscape remained enchanted in his mind, right? Old Ashkenaz, the Ashkenaz of, you know, the, the Chavos Yair, the Ashkenaz of the Balafla and the Pnei Yehoshua, this continued to exist in the mind of the Chasam Sofer. 
And it comes up in a few places. So in this tshuva, um, you know, I'm gonna come back to this tshuva. This is on Kitniot. In this one, he's responding to somebody who was criticizing the fact that German Jews tended to be clean shaven, except for the rabbis, right? The rabbis had beards, but everybody else, all of the Balabatim, all of the laity, they remained clean shaven. Where were, and they were criticized for it. And he goes off on the person that was criticizing his, his childhood landscape. Avotenu inhigu atzmam kein altzara hechrach, hagadol. They did this because they had, they, this is how they started to, this is why they shaved, right? They had to. Why? It wasn't from some sort of destructive, you know, source, God forbid. It was because they were extra holy that they shaved. This was in the days of the, the first crusade in the year Tuf Tuf Nun Vav, 1096. The first crusade, the Haroim and the, the shepherds, meaning that's the pastoreau, the another crusade, Uchadoma and the stuff like that, that stuff. There were a lot of itinerant peddlers, and the, their gedolim said, You're allowed to, you can dress differently and you can shave. You, they can shave so that you could be incognito, so that your enemies won't recognize you when you're out on the road. Because by that point, the non-Jews were all shaving. And he goes on a whole aside to explain why the non-Jews started shaving, based on history books that he read. So they had they kept a symbolic amount of beard hair. They wouldn't complain, they wouldn't shave completely. They would kept keep a symbolic amount of facial hair. There's a, basically a one day, like a five o'clock shadow. They would keep it like that, um, like overnight growth. Only the sages who would stay at home and wouldn't travel, they grew their, they grew out their beards. calls that. And you Polish Jews, you wimps, you cowards. You didn't stay and tough it out and shave. You ran off to Poland and then you kept your beards. Way to go, guys. Right? He's like he's like trolling the Poles. Um, he's saying the fact that the Poles have beards and the Germans don't have beards, it's not because the Poles are holier. On the contrary, it's because we, the German Jews, were holier because we stuck with it. We devoted our lives. We dedicated ourselves. And yeah, in order to come, you know, in order to deal with that, we had to we had to shave. In another in another chuva, he actually gives us his mental map of where of what Ashkenaz is. So the same rabbi that you know that he was responding to in one fifty nine criticized the Jews of Franconia, right, southwestern Germany, as doing something against halacha. God forbid you say something like that about the Jewish people. Now here again, you're getting back into this consciousness of Minag Yisrael Torah and the idea of a kehila kedosha, that the entire community is sacred. My entire childhood, my parents, my teachers, my, my ancestors, 
the ones that are dead, the ones that are alive, you're, you're not talking about me, you're talking about them. You don't, you don't talk about my people that way. Um, and these were super holy people. And then he gives us his boundaries. When I talk about Frankia, and this is old Ashkenaz, right? basically from outside of Fjorda is Firth, right? from outside of Firth, which is right next to Nuremberg, anything beyond that, that is, that's what we're talking about here. That's the, Nuremberg is right between the Danube Basin and the Rhine Basin. Right, so like that's basically where Ashkenaz starts. Shama Dayan Noagin Minog Poland were of the Brahim. There in Firth, they still they use Minog Poland. But I can't attest to their Minog. Anything beyond that. Where is that? Würzburg, from the area around Würzburg, all along the Main River, Varinus and the Rhine River, Ad Hayamagadol until the North Sea, Uvichlal, and including those cities on the North Sea, like Hamburg. Him are Frankia. That's what we mean by Frankia. Uvichlalam, what does that include? Frankfurt, Mainz, Worms, Metz, Mannheim, and the like. Rov min Hagamal Pirabi, Amram Gon. And he says that these all, a, these, these all, they have a real pedigree for all of their minhagim. And their minhagim are documented in Sefer Yosef Ometz and Noah Katzon Yosef. These are collections of minhagim. And yeah, it's true. Sometimes they go against the Ramah. Because the Ramah was Polish and he was writing about Polish Minhag. But we Ashkenazim, real Ashkenazim, we didn't change our ancient Minhag because of this. Okay, so now we have another piece of where he's coming from, which is this his enchanted landscape of his youth, the enchanted landscape of Ashkenaz, which he expands. And now we're gonna go back to this, uh, the one that we skipped, where he's talking about Kitniot. And there was, people asked, you know, there, there was one area, Westphalia, that actually did away with the custom of Kitniot. And he was asked about that. And he was very vehement in saying no. Um, and he says, even if there would be a reason to, you would need most or all of all the sages of Ashkenaz to get together. They're the ones who accepted this Gezer from the beginning. We all have the status of one city. So if in, the, in this chuva over here, Ashkenaz is this limited space. Here, when he's talking about Kitneo, he's saying that Ashkenaz the entire territory of Europe has the status of one city because however it was, it's spread out from there. And now all of Ashkenaz has that, has that status. Now it's a very innovative reading, but as we know, Khatam uh, Sofer was not against innovation, right? He was very innovative, extremely creative. Um, so you have that he has this consciousness of Ashkenaz, but he expands that consciousness, extends that consciousness throughout Europe. Um, I think we're gonna skip these last. We already saw most of these points and you can read them on your own. There, here, he's talking about, in a nutshell, he, 
he gives his opposition to um, translating the Torah because he says that, and here we get into the question of like, who's really orthodox? Right? Once again, these are when he's writing on Chet Tevet. He says, when you translate the Torah, you lock in one meaning, right? When you translate it into German, this is the interpretation. And it's usually the pshat, right? Kavanah pshuta. You cut off every other avenue of interpretation when you translate the Torah. And that's the real tragedy of, trans of translation. You take something which has this infinite capacity for innovation, for new interpretation, and you cut off all the interpretations but one. I actually put in um, a paragraph from Spinoza here where Spinoza talks about biblical interpretation. The method of interpreting scripture does not widely differ from the method of interpreting nature. Scriptural interpretation proceeds by the examination of scripture. And he says it's, he's, he sees it as being a purely empirical um, endeavor. And the chasm so far is like chas right? And that's animating a lot of the projects to translate the Torah that are going on in his time, the Buer and whatnot. Um, he says that this is why he said he sees the emphasis on only pshat, only the straightforward meaning of the Torah as nitzotzo shel apikorsos, as like a fledgling form of, of heresy because you're cutting off all of these other avenues of interpretation. So now I pose the question back, back to you, back to the audience. You have one person who's saying, no, we need to keep those gates of interpretation open because they're never gonna be exhausted because interpretation is infinite and ongoing and always. And there's another group that's saying, no, this is shot that we've reduced it to a science and we know exactly this is what the Torah says and this is what the Torah means. Which one of those is orthodox? Which one of those is in its literal sense, orthodox, correct thinking, thinks that there's one correct way of doing things or one correct way of being? Who's the purest? Who's puritanical? Who, is it Qasem Sofer or is it the beerists? Chasm Sofer or Mendelssohn, Chasm Sofer or Spinoza, right? And I have to say that this line of reasoning is, uh, I'm indebted to Maoz Kahana, who is both my thesis advisor and, um, you know, who basically wrote, he wrote this book on the Noda Yehuda and the Chasm Sofer, which is um, a total game changer. It just re, it reset the bar for rabbinic biography. It's just simply outstanding. In what, and, I'm gonna, the, the last source we'll look at is here he actually, in this responsum, he actually describes his process of how he writes a tshuva. He says, because casuistry is en endless. You can always come up with, you know, theories and ideas. Everybody can respond to his friend's claims and then the latter will respond to the former, because everybody loves arguing because we're Jews. And people aren't objective about this. They're going to incline what you think is right, and that's going to shape what you what you are. So what do you do? How do you pass an Allah? How do you how do you do this? How do you how do you know you're right? How do you know when you're right? 
Um, ach, in miyad ula alter, if immediately, spontaneously, bulishum hit boninut, without any thought, without any contemplation, adam tshuva usfarat mateh, you come up with a response to a um, to a misleading idea. Zimar Elan, which shows us shekena labamachshavalifaninu, meazumeolam. It means that your your this is the correct response. This is how our this is what rose in thought before us all time. You know, at all times. Turn the chalekalenu shum barrier before anybody disagreed with us. And that's how I know I'm telling the truth. As it really is. And I didn't make up false things just because I love arguing. It's similar to the halachic concept of the concept of is that you have greater credibility. Like, for example, if, you know, if, if you're afraid that milk fell into the chillin pot. You can't go and ask a non-Jew directly, did you pour milk into there? You're gonna be like, mm, that looks really good. What's the secret ingredient? And if he says, oh, milk, meaning he's speaking naively, he's speaking in his innocence, that's Mesiach Lafitu Mo, right? So he says that correct halacha, proper paskening of halacha is almost like Mesiach Lafitu Mo, right? It's almost like it has to be completely naive. And it's more credible that way because you're not, strategizing and you're not fighting war with strategizing rather there's a certain naivete that you have okay what i'd like to do okay we've seen now that um the prevailing view is what is that hasam sofer is orthodox that he has a rigid way of thinking that he's strict um, we also have seen that a lot of his writing uh, demonstrates a really, really robust originality and creativity, lakula, lachumra, in the world of ideas and in the world of practice. Um, uh, you know, I'm constantly astounded by his brilliance, his creativity, his humor. Um, and so I would like, so, so I don't think that the regnant paradigm I don't think that it really accounts for everything. Um, my teacher, Moos Kahana, he suggested another lens to look at him, which it encompasses a lot of these elements that are part of the prevailing paradigm, but it adds to them. And that is, and you know, with this we'll we'll conclude. Um, <laughs> he sees the Khatam Sofer as a romantic. Now, the romantic movement, romanticism was a movement that arose at this period in history, the earlier part, the first half of the 19th century as a response to the enlightenment and you know, as, a, as a form of what's called counter enlightenment, right? That if counter enlightenment, if the enlightenment was all about universe, the universal and the rational, this is all about the subjective, the particular individual charisma sources of knowledge that you can't necessarily share with others, right? Um, it was, it meant glorification of the past, especially the medieval past. Chasam Sofer definitely checks that box. It meant 
glorification of folkways and customs and lore and literature and even art and music, the neo-Gothic, right? The taking of folk music and embedding them into classical themes. And you definitely see Hassam Sofer doing that, the whole idea of taking customs and taking Durabanans and elevating them to the level of the Oraita. It very much resonates with this idea of the elevation and glorification of folkways and folk customs. Um, the counter-enlightenment was pluralistic in the sense that, at least in its non-supremacist variants, we know what happened with its supremacist variants, or you know, these are the antecedents of its supremacist variants, but in its pluralistic variants, it's like we have folkways and another folk might have their folkways, right? And that's okay. We'll be true to our folkways. You'll be true to your folkways, right? And Hasim Sofer, he's not anti-non-Jews. He's anti-Jews imitating non-Jews, becoming non, becoming like non-Jews. Jews should be true to their folkways, especially since those folkways are themselves the vehicle for God's continued revelation in this world. Um, and an emphasis on that which is beyond rational, whether it's the mystical or what comes after you master something, what comes after you've already encountered the rational, there are other sources of knowledge and there are other sources of experience that can also, that are also part and parcel of the human experience and those shouldn't be and can't be discounted. So now that we have this other view, this other way, this other lens through which to look at the Chassam Sofer, it leaves us with a question about his legacy. I've argued that the Chassam Sofer was far less, at least intellectually, rigid than the Mendelssohns and then the Beerists, that he was much more willing to entertain um, a plethora of ideas that you know one pasuk can, can sustain multiple, multiple meanings. So does that mean that he wasn't really the founder of quote unquote capital O orthodoxy? Or perhaps does it mean that orthodoxy itself isn't what we thought it was? And I will leave you with that question. Thank you. If there are questions here, I'll I'll stay on and answer some questions if uh, if you'd like. But uh, we are uh... yes. First of all, thank you very much. Uh, I just had one thought about the presentation, which is that it strikes me that what what I understood from the lecture, maybe that was that text that we was very difficult to decipher. What he seems to be saying is that our attempt to understand and the multiple chidushim point us in the direction that actually, at the end of the day, we can't actually understand it. Or there are maybe infinite possibilities, and then we're sort of forced to choose one, and the best one to choose is what's always been there. What, 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 are we, what we are commanded to do, we come to, uh, you know, it's like Rav Nachman, you know, the, the, the highest knowledge is to know that you can't know. If that be the case, then there are two things. One is that at the end of the day, decision is made through what you call intuition. Even before you open the source, that's what he means. Right? That strikes me as very conservative. 
once it's once we already can't once it's already non-rational all we have is that which is written that which is or that which is tried and true that which is already part of the tradition thank you thank you thank you thank you um, um, Rabbi Fisher um, Nachman Rebreslov yes uh, the article that I was referring to where um where Maoz Kahana, you know, puts Khatam, you know, creates this dialogue between Khatam Sofer and Spinoza, he has Rabnachman and Breslov on team Khatam Sofer. And they were contemporaries. I don't know if they ever met, they were in different empires, but they were contemporaries. Tim, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Fisher, there's been um, a lot of debate. Firstly, thank you very much for enlightening us on, on the romantic side of the- Enlightenment, chas v'shalom. Of, of explaining possibly, um, because uh, looking at his sons and his, and his descendants, um, um, the, the chasav sofa and the uh, so forth, extreme hardliners, um, not following possibly this, um, Train of thought, and 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 I, and I believe as well. There's there's been substantial discussion on whether the Khatam Sofer actually gave drashot in German, and um, his descendants um, ardently deny that. So I'm just wondering whether whether the descendants of Rabbi Hirsch managed to carry on um, his term Derech Eretz, but I don't think the descendants of the Khatam Sofer managed to continue. Um, his line of thought. What is your feeling of that? Um, Khatam Sofer, in terms of his descendants, you can find descendants of the Khatam Sofer of every single stripe. Um, I was in Vienna a couple of years ago, back when we could travel, and you know, I, we, my wife and I, we stopped in this, you know, an antique, in an antique bookstore, and we saw a book that had belonged to Khatam Sofer's great grandson, whose name was also Avraham Shmuel Binyamin, which was the same name as his son, the Khatam Sofer. And uh, I mentioned it to, you know, our host there, and he says, "Oh, yeah, I should tell, I should tell any of the fifty Avraham Shmuel Binyamins who are his descendants who live here." And so it's like he's like the Genghis Khan of. Of the, yeah, he, of married, the, he married several the, times. Everybody's his descendant. Yeah, he married several times. And um, I that, believe. What was that? I, I believe he married several times. Yes, he married three times. I think he only had children with his first two wives. Uh, um, his second wife was the daughter of Rabbi Akiva Eger, who was his contemporary. Um, and his first wife died relatively young. His second wife died also relatively young. She was much younger than he was. And um, yeah, he married three times. Just to uh, set the record straight, all of his wife, all of his children came from his second wife. All of them? Yes. Really? Oh, okay. Well, Thank you. Uh, speaking of descendants of the Khatam Sofer, um, David Glasner is the well, it's the Dora Vigi from the Dora Vigi, the Dor Shli. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you can, uh, right. Right? You're the great grandson of the grandson of the great grandson of the Khatam Sofer, a great grandson of Rabbi, um, uh, Rabbi Moshe Shmuel Glasner, who was the rabbi in Cluj, Koloshvar, um, Klausenberg, Klausenberg in uh, today Romania. 
who was himself wrote the book Doravi'i and who was, and this is something that many descendants of the Khatam Sofer will vehemently deny, and even descendants of uh, Rabbi Glasner himself will vehemently deny that he was a Zionist, but he was a Zionist, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Glasner. And his book, Doravi'i, was a play on the fact that on one end, he was the fourth generation from the Khatam Sofer, and on the other hand, Doravi'i Yeshuvu Heina, the fourth generation will return to Eretz Israel. that the title of the book is a reflection of his Zionism. Um, yeah. Can I change my mind and ask one like a small question? Sure. Uh, the Rabbi Nathan Adler, which you mentioned, is this the one who was suspected in, in being involved in magic? Oh, yeah. So here is the question. I think it went well beyond suspicion. Yeah, so uh, the fact that his two teachers like Ashala Kadosh and Antad uh, Adler with magic, and the fact that there was a, a stories about Khatam Sofer himself exercising a D-book, and you mentioned that he wrote amulets. So yeah. all this is that he... Sika? I mean, it's different. I think that's part of his, you know, when we talked about the landscape of the, the early Ashkenazic landscape, I think that's part of, that's part of it. Um, one of the chuvot that I didn't get to was about Nittelnacht, right? Now, Nittelnacht, today, it's pretty much only Hasidim that observe it, but the origins of the customs of not, not learning Torah on Christmas Eve is, is actually in the Rhineland, right? The earliest attestations that we have of it are in communities of the Rhineland, Karlsruhe, and, uh, and Frankfurt and, uh, and Worms, um, and all in the, you know, in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the Tom Sofer even writes that his Rebbe, his Rebbe and his father both gave the same explanation for why we don't learn Torah on Christmas Eve. And then he says, I don't like those explanations. And he gives his own explanation, but he still doesn't learn Torah on Christmas Eve. And you contrast that with uh, Rav Lazar Flekulis, who was in Prague and a contemporary, a student of the Noda Behuda and a contemporary of Khatam Sofer, where he writes in a tshuva uh, that was discovered by Mark Shapiro in an archive in Prague. Uh, he writes how, yeah, there's nothing in Shas and Postgame that says that you're not allowed to learn on Christmas Eve, so I learn on Christmas Eve. And for the Khatam Sofer, that's not really, the fact that it doesn't say that in the shot in Shas and Postgame doesn't really matter as much to him because if my father didn't learn on Christmas Eve and my Rebbe Reb Nuss and Adler didn't learn on Christmas Eve, I'm not going to learn on Christmas Eve. Um, now, you know, if you get back, you know, earlier to where this comes from, it's these. There, there were all kinds of Christ of of um, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, there were all kinds of legends in the German countryside about various demons that would be wandering around and that you had to be careful and you couldn't go out at night um, because there are demons that are running around and like and, and you can google pictures of these demons like they're they're pretty scary they would kidnap kids they would eat kids like frightening stuff like you mean the stuff that's like straight out of like the brothers grim um and that's that's very much part of that romanticism right and i think that that's yeah he lived in a world that was still enchanted with demons and with Sigulot and with, you know, he, Mos Kahana has an article about his exorcisms. Um, but 
yeah, magic was still a part of his worldview. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. Also, Rabbi Akiva Eger, people have been talking about him because he was, you know, he was the one who got the medal from the Kaiser because of his handling of the, uh, you know, his leadership of the Jewish community during the cholera epidemic in 1831. And he would, you know, this is Khatam Sofer's father-in-law. Khatam Sofer, we're not going to talk about his relationship with the cholera epidemic because um, he, put it this way, he was not nearly as outstanding as his father-in-law in this regard. Um, but Rabbi Akiva Eger, you know, he was the one who was like, yeah, he, he, he was the one who said, we have to post cops outside the synagogues to make sure that not too many people show up, right? To keep the numbers down in the shoals. Like he was really on top of this and he cut out all kinds of things. Like we got to finish davening really quickly so that the next shift can come in and daven. Um, and, and he got a citation of merit from the Kaiser, but he also wrote Segula. He also was writing these, you know, magical uh, amulets to ward off plague, just at the same time that he was, you know, he was telling people to go visit the doctor. So, you know, the idea that a magical worldview is completely um, incompatible with a with a an empirical worldview or with a, a rationalist worldview, historically, that's just not the case. People, you know, were able of holding all kinds of contradictory thoughts even before breakfast. Um, thank you, Rabbi Fisher. Uh, I think we'll have to stop at this point. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Fisher, uh, for this very interesting uh, class. Uh, thank you to also to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program this evening at 8 p.m. with the third session of a class on King Solomon and his demons with Rabbi David Zilber. We also meet again tomorrow at 1 p.m. with the third session of a class on rabbinic authority and personal autonomy in early rabbinic law with Dr. Ayelet Hoffman Lipson. In addition, we always have many more classes happening. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. You can also watch classes live. We also have recordings of all classes uh, live at www.dresha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to uh, learn with you, Rabbi Fisher. And thank, thank you. you again. I'm gonna go play in the snow now. Wonderful. And thanks again, uh, everyone who attended. We really hope to see you uh, tonight, tomorrow, or soon at one of our uh, upcoming classes here at Dresha. Thank you so much. <laughs>